Welcome back to the CSP Elite Baseball Development Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Cressy, and this is episode 133. We've got one of college baseball's outstanding coaches on as a guest, and these episodes are very popular, um, and I think this one in particular will be particularly popular with, with parents and kids that are listening to this together in the car on the rides to games for, for really two big reasons. One, he's, he's done an awesome job in multiple places of, of turning programs around and uh, kicking out some really good players and having some, some awesome outcomes on the field. So I'm excited to learn about some of the things that he implements um, from a cultural standpoint, what are the, the key indicators of success are for him. But I think also he's a really good guest um, because he, he represents a high academic institution. So this isn't just about playing baseball. This is also about becoming a, a great student, a great person. And, and certainly the, the kids that I've interacted with who have gone through his university are, are really upstanding guys that I've enjoyed working with. So I think you'll have a lot to teach. Um, and this is one I'm really looking forward to. This episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens, the most comprehensive NSF certified for sport daily nutritional supplement I've ever tried. With so many stressors in life, it's difficult to maintain effective nutritional habits and give our bodies the nutrients they need to thrive. As a father of three young kids and a co-founder of multiple businesses in multiple states, on top of still being an avid exerciser, I know that busy schedules can really take their toll on us. Whether it's poor sleep, exercise or life stressors, environmental factors, or simply not eating enough of the right foods, we can wind up deficient nutritionally. This is where Athletic Greens can really help. It's a game-changing nutritional insurance policy. They simplify the logistics of getting optimal nutrition on a daily basis by giving you just one thing with all the best things. And that's why I use it daily and recommend it to our athletes. One scoop of Athletic Greens contains 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients, including a multivitamin, multimineral, probiotic, green superfood blend, and more. They work together to fill the nutritional gaps in your diet, increase energy and focus, aid in digestion, recovery, and supporting of a healthy immune system. This all can happen without taking multiple products. While most nutritional products come to market and stay stagnant, Athletic Greens continues to obsessively improve this one holistic formula based on the latest research, producing 53 improvements over the last decade. They invest in the most absorbable and natural source of each ingredient and go above and beyond in third-party testing to ensure their customers continue to receive the highest quality and best daily nutritional habit on the planet. It's lifestyle friendly, whether you're keto, paleo, vegan, dairy-free, or gluten-free, and contains less than one gram of sugar without compromising on taste. They put 75 ingredients to the NSF for Sport certification to come up with a formula that's trusted by some of the world's best athletes, including our own. Right now, Athletic Greens is giving our listeners 10 free travel packets with their subscription. Simply go to athleticgreens.com backslash Cressy to receive my offer. These travel packs are perfect for supporting your immune system, energy, and gut health when you're traveling for games, training, or simply when you're on the go. They can be a great counterbalance to less than ideal on-the-road food options. So if you want to bridge the gap between deficient and optimal and give yourself the best chance to get nutrient diversity, then head to athleticgreens.com backslash Cressy and get your 10 free travel packets today. Again, that's athleticgreens.com backslash Cressy, C-R-E-S-S-E-Y. Today's guest took over as Duke Baseball's 25th head coach in June of 2012. Since that time, he's coached 33 Major League Baseball draft picks, 16 All-ACC selections, four freshman All-Americans, and three All-Americans. In addition, he has led the program to two Super Regionals and an ACC Baseball Tournament Championship title, which hadn't previously happened in the program's history. Duke has also reached three consecutive postseasons for the first time in program history, and their postseason appearance in 2016 broke a 55-year drought. 
In 2021, he became the first Duke coach to reach 100 career ACC wins, becoming one of six active head coaches to achieve that mark at the time. In 2021, Duke won the first ACC baseball tournament championship title in program history and its first conference title since 1961. Prior to his position at Duke, he served as head coach at Appalachian State from 2005 to 2012. Before that, he'd been the head coach at Pfeiffer University from 2000 to 2004 and an assistant coach at his alma mater, Davidson College, from 1996 to 1999. He graduated from Davidson in 1996, earning a BA in psychology. While here, he was a program standout pitcher on the baseball team. He became just the third pitcher in program history to win 20 career games and now ranks among the top 10 in Davidson history in wins, strikeouts, innings pitched, starts, complete games, and shutouts. He also received a master's degree in physical education from Mississippi State in 2004. Please welcome to the show, Chris Pollard. Chris, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, really welcome to the show. I'm excited to talk. Eric, thanks for having me on. Um, so I'm, I got a million questions for you just because I've seen what you've done you know, not just at Duke, but even uh, at Appalachian State beforehand. But I, I think it's always good to get maybe a perspective on the path to coaching. Um, I knew you were a standout player at Davidson and, and had a great career yourself. What was the initial transition like for you from playing to coaching? Um, you know, was it was it a hard adjustment or was it something that was very natural for you? Yeah, so I fall in that category of the those that can no longer do teach. Uh, that's how I, I backed my way into coaching. You know, I. I, after playing at Davidson, signed and had a very lackluster career in independent baseball. The fall of 1996, I came back to Davidson with every intention of going to spring training and was training and, and working out and, and sort of coaching on the side. But my primary focus was on me and, and getting an opportunity in professional baseball. And the Coastal Plain League had just been announced into existence. They were starting to formulate teams for that following spring. And Dick Cook, who was my coach and, and, and mentor at Davidson, said, hey, why don't you go be a pitching coach in, in this new Coastal Plain League? Think it might be a great opportunity for you and you, you might be good at it. And I, uh, at the time, Eric was rooming with Brett Beretti, uh, who coaches at Columbia University and has done just an incredible job there with that program over the last 17 years. And and I came home all offended, and I said to Brett, you know, hey, coach, coach thinks I should take this job in coaching, but I'm, I'm going to spring training. And he said, no, you're not. Like, <laughs> you, you need to face reality that maybe your playing days are in the rearview mirror. And so, you know, fast forward, I did a summer uh, as a pitching coach in the CPL. The following year, Pete Bach, who formulated that Coastal Playing League, gave me an opportunity to be a head coach, and, and I fell in love with it. I fell in love with being a head coach. Uh, the responsibility, the pressure, the adrenaline, and uh, and from there, kind of never look back. That's amazing. You know, I think one of the things I'm always fascinated is like the the transition from from playing to coaching. Um, we've talked about it on a couple of previous podcasts. Is this like mindset of you know to to be a, a starting pitcher, right? It's everything is focused around getting ready for that day. You know, to to be a really high level athlete, sometimes you have to be you know to a degree selfish about when you train, when you eat, when you sleep, all these things. And then when you go to coaching, it's it's very much about like serving others. And I think it's one of the reasons why we see so many catchers that you know smoothly transition to it. You know, certainly like utility players um, always seem to do really well. Like. Did, did you find that that was like a, an actual adjustment you had to make or was it something that, that sat well with your personality? No, I think it's a great point. And I think your point about catchers and why they're so suited 
because they are servant leaders, right? Uh, I, I talk about that all the time with our catchers. I, I've got a son who's a catcher. I say it's the ultimate servant leadership yeah. position on the field. You know, I think one of the things that helped me, I, I was one of those pitchers that really liked to be involved in the game when mm-hmm. I wasn't pitching. Yeah. You know, I, I like uh, being a teammate and 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 really celebrating the success of my teammates. I, I, I like hearing and discussing and talking strategy in the dugout as a game went along. And, and so, you know, for me converting to being a starting pitcher in my last, my, in my final three years there at Davidson sort of gave me an opportunity to get to know the game better. I realized when I got to Davidson, I I didn't really know the game that well coming out of high school, but, you know, playing for a guy like Dick Cook and who, who such a, so has been at so many different levels of the game from, professional baseball to being involved with the USA program and the Olympics and everything that he did at Davidson. Just, I, you know, I learned a lot just sitting there on the bench watching. Interesting. You met, you mentioned, you know, learning and, and the game's evolved a lot, you know, since you were, I think you were in college in 96 to 99, give or take, um, you know, or excuse me, up until 96. How have you seen it change just in the time that you've been involved as a coach? Is it, as it, I mean, obviously we see more technology and all that, but even just in the context of, you know, the, the outside pressures and, you know, maybe some of the extrinsic motivation, you know, to players, is it, is it dramatically different in in your eyes? Yes, it is dramatically different. It starts at the lowest levels of our sport. It goes all the way to the highest levels of our sport. And this is something that you've talked on a lot and that is early specialization. So, Mm -hmm. you know, we, we have these athletes that, that want to specialize in baseball at a really early age. Uh, the recruiting piece has changed a ton and, and it's earlier and it's more intense and it's more laborious. Uh, obviously, the money involved now in college baseball is different and better than it was in the early 90s. And I think with more money involved comes higher expectations. And, and so you're starting to see that dynamic in our sport with coaching turnover and um you know, it's a it's a it's a good and a bad problem to have. We have more eyeballs on us than we ever have, uh, but with that comes responsibility. Uh, certainly, it it continues to evolve in terms of the training piece, right? Where uh, athletes have more information than they've ever had. We have more technology to bring to bear in in mm-hmm. truly understanding how to train players. We use our eyes less mm-hmm. and 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 are able to 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 verify more information yeah. than we ever have. Uh, and I think that's made for better, more dynamic, healthier athletes. Um, so it, it's it, it continues to change. I, I tell people it's probably changed more in the last 10 years than it did in the previous 30 or 40 years. But certainly, I think we're, we're in another uh, sort of window of really historic change in our sport with, you know, the introduction of the transfer portal and with the introduction of NIL and what that's going to do just – to the entire landscape of college athletics. Absolutely. I remember there was a, a quote from Nick Saban, you know, many, many years ago. Um, and by many, I said, you know, six to seven, where he talked about this concept of having to unrecruit players sometimes when they get there, just because you go through this crazy courtship process as a, as a good high school athlete, where you have all these schools that are interested in you, and in many cases, advisors and, you know, in-home visit with scouts and all that stuff. And I, I mentioned it to Butch Thompson, you know, we chatted a couple of years ago and he, he said, you know, he saw some of the same things and that was probably 2019, 2020. Um, I, I guess I'm curious, are, are you seeing that where, you know, a kid, 
you know, eventually, you know, everybody kind of takes their licks as a freshman at a, an ACC program or anything like that. But do you find that you actually have to kind of bring guys down to a, you know, a little bit of a new reality when they, when they get there? It's interesting. It's, it's, you know, we recruit these guys twice in high school, right? So you recruit them in the commitment process. And in our sport, that happens pretty early between the ninth grade and the 11th grade year. And then if you're, if you're getting the right type of player, you're sort of recruiting them again in their senior year, except instead of recruiting against other college programs, you're, you're recruiting against them uh, making an immediate jump into professional baseball. And then you're right. They get to campus and then all of a sudden you, you've told them how great they are for <laughs> the last three and sometimes four years. And, and now they're struggling and you're in a position where you want to be really honest with them and, and you want to train them hard and, and, and you want to give them tough love. And, and I think what I found, especially with our kids here at Duke, because they're really high achievers academically and athletically, they're really talented. So they have failed very little before they get to us. I really believe that's one of the hardest parts of the transition to a place like Duke is truly being able to um, accept and, and embrace a growth mindset mm-hmm. and, and, and realize that the failure, the struggle, the adversity, the tough love, that those are all things that are going to help me grow because it's really easy for a guy that's never really failed and they get to a place and they start to experience failure to go, well, wait, something's wrong. This must not be the right place for me, or this might not be, you know, and so helping young players understand that, Hey, this struggle is really good for you. And it's going to, it's going to actually accelerate your growth is, is can be a tough thing. Yeah. I I think it's an inherent it's a competitive advantage that college baseball has compared to professional baseball. I mean, they're obviously several in that dynamic, but people forget the, just the continuity that, that comes with being in a college program. You know, the same head coach, the same pitching coach, the same hitting coach, all this stuff, same athletic trainers and strength conditioning coaches. And you go to professional baseball and you might deal with 15 different people who all have that same role. They're just at different levels. So in many cases you can get mixed messages. And when you're going to a completely different environment, you always want to try to minimize variables, right? The, the new variable is, Hey, I'm moving to North Carolina and I've never lived there before. Um, so it does kind of help to just have maybe a smaller circle of people that are there that are all rowing the same direction for you. So it's, it's an interesting point. Um, you know, I, I'm fascinated to, to shift gears a little bit by the, by this concept of culture change. And you've got a recent history of turning programs into winners after dry spells. Um, and in Appalachia State, I think it was they they'd won 10 games in the two years before you got there. And honestly, where I first heard your name, it was you guys, you guys basically took it to NC State. I think it was two years in a row when they had Rodone and Trey Turner on the rosters. I mean, they had they had some dudes. And um, I want to say you were out there. It was a couple of years in a row and really put on a show. And then obviously coming to Duke, um, you know, I think it was the uh, the first time or first postseason his appearance in 2016 for like 55 years. So, you know, two scenarios where you've, you've turned guys around and then even Appalachian State, like the number of draft picks and you see that Duke as well. I'm curious if there were certain lessons that you learned in both these places, certain initiatives that, that made a big difference for you as you, you tried to you know effectively flip a culture. Well, so it's interesting. The first thing I would say is whether it was making the jump to Pfeiffer or then the jump to Appalachian or or finally the jump in 2012 to Duke, 
I would say at all three places, I realized after one year on the job that if I didn't change who I was and change how we went about things, that we were doomed to fail. So I think the ability to be adaptable and and be self-aware enough to recognize when something's not working and you've got to adjust is really important. I would also say that I didn't understand the importance of and really didn't understand how to build culture until I got here to do. Now, looking back on the experience at Appalachian, the one thing I can see in the in the rear view, that 2012 team that we had at Appalachian, won 41 games, won the Southern Conference Championship, took two out of three from LSU, uh, who went, wound up going on to win the uh, SEC that year. We went to the, the, the finals of the Charlottesville Regional. That team had culture, and I didn't even know it. Like I wasn't aware enough and understanding enough for culture to recognize that team had it. Since I've been here at Duke, our culture has evolved over my 11 years because each each time we've added a different facet or element to our culture, it's been because of recognition that we were missing uh, a, a key piece that was going to help us grow. And so to, to give you a little bit of that evolution, after year one here at Duke, we really set about uh, promoting and, 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 and really from, from the top down and from the bottom up, embracing a process over outcome mentality. We wanted our guys to really fall in love with the process. And, 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 and for us, we define process with three elements, one being your routines. So we wanted guys to be really routine oriented. We wanted guys to be mindful. Let's, let's commit to be where our feet are. And three, understand how we can use our breath to put ourselves in an optimal performance state. That, that Those are the three pieces of process that we talk about on almost, almost a daily basis with our players. A few years into our journey here at Duke, realized, man, process is really important, but process is pretty individual. And, and this is a team sport, and, and we've got to get outside of ourselves more than we do. And, and a concept that we've already talked about a little bit here today uh, servant leadership became a, a real foundational aspect of, of what we do. And, and we define servant leadership very specifically as just caring about the people around you more than you do yourself. Um, we, 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 we talk about falling in love with each other's success and, and, and really wanting to have a group uh, in a locker room that embraces that dynamic uh, where they're, they're going to celebrate each other's success. In 2018, in the midst of uh, arguing the, the best season in the history of, of the Duke baseball program, we wound up winning 45 games and went to the finals of a super regional, uh, lost out at, to, to Texas Tech in a game to go to the College World Series. Yeah, I really real, realized through that journey how important gratitude was as a core principle within culture. I think gratitude is the key for fighting off entitlement. And, and once you start to experience success, it's pretty easy to let some feelings of entitlement seep into your approach. And so we talk a lot about practicing intentional gratitude as a way to ward off entitlement. And then lastly, another uh, kind of uh, principle that we've already embraced or talked about here on the podcast, and that is just having a growth mindset. You know, really uh, rewiring how you look at failure 
and, and, and embracing failure instead of avoiding failure, uh, embracing adversity instead of avoid, avoiding adversity. And, and we, we talk all the time about, you know, being comfortable, being uncomfortable. And, and the way you do that is, is being really conscious of stepping out of your comfort zone on a regular basis. So those are the four pieces that we talk about when we talk about, you know, sort of building our culture or maintaining our culture. But it has really evolved to over time to get to this point, Eric. Yeah. You know, and, and as you're describing, and I can almost think of a fifth one, whether you recognize it as like the humility, right? Is to recognize that, you know, what we did in year one, either A, we, we were we we're having success by accident, or or B, you know, we recognized that there was something that we didn't do well and we had to work on it. And that's I mean, that's a an underpinning to the growth mindset is, is the awareness to do it. Um, it's interesting as you're as you're talking about gratitude being the, the key to avoiding entitlement. First thing that came to mind, um, Paul Goldschmidt wrote handwritten thank you notes to everyone on our staff on the last day of the lockout this year. And we had most of the Cardinals organization trained in there, a lot of their their guys that were there. And um, you, you look at Goldie and like guys just flock to him. Like everybody just goes up a level when he's around. And I've seen him take like younger, like first year big leaguers under his wing. I mean, heck, he's, he's paid for their training at times, just like a completely stand up guy, you know, who's, who's about to potentially win a National League MVP and he's writing handwritten thank you notes. It, it does speak volumes for, for what that means. Yeah. It it, first thing that came to my mind. So that's awesome. Eric, um, we, we, we talk about looking for it in the recruitment process. Yeah. It, 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 it's an intangible that we want to identify in our recruits. And I'll, you know, I'll hang up the phone with a recruit and I'll type in my notes say, Hey, this guy's got gratitude. I can yeah. hear it in his voice because we know that's a guy that's going to be able to fight off entitlement. Yeah. It goes a long way. And you can see it in the, in the interactions too, you know, even just things like holding doors for people and saying, thank you when you're out to eat. And, and those things go a really, really long way. It's, it's, you know, how you do one thing is how you do everything. Um, and maybe it leads to like a little bit more of a, a deeper dive on the recruiting front. Um, you know, what are the biggest mistakes that you're seeing high school players and, and, and certainly their parents, you know, make in this process? Do you have certain recruiting pet peeves or mistakes that you see as they they reach out and go further down that process? Yeah, it, uh, we always talk about this at our prospect camps, Eric. My biggest pet peeve, uh, since you asked, <laughs> is, is when the parent will email on behalf of the player. <laughs> And I actually take a, a, a moment in our camps to say, look, when I was a young coach, I would I would actually respond to those emails and I would engage the parent. And then I would I don't know, about 10 years ago, I stopped doing that and I would respond and say, hey, that's great and all. But I'm really interested in recruiting your son, not you. <laughs> and, and now, uh, after 23 years of doing it, I just see an email from a parent and I say, OK, we're not going to engage because it's it's must be more important to the parent than it is to the player. I think having the player take ownership in the process is 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 first and foremost in in terms of getting this journey off on the right foot. Yeah, it's and you can tell when the parents are writing the emails pretending to be the kids. That's the worst. 100%. You know, fifteen year olds don't use semicolons. <laughs> we know this. Um, That's right. Yeah. So it, it, you see that quite a bit. I, one question I have is maybe a follow up, and this is one I've made that point in the past, and it's good to reiterate it. Um, and I think one of the questions I always get back is, you know, how much should they reach out? You know, they don't want to feel like they're spamming you and sending you one every week with their updated yeah. schedule and a new video and new statistics. But what's the right amount of outreach? When should it start? 
um, you know, how, how does somebody get on, on Coach Pollard's radio? Right yeah, no, it's such an important question. And it's funny because I now I, I, I can answer it thinking about it from a coach's perspective. But now I'm going through it with my own teenage yeah. boys and I'm looking at it from the dad's perspective. And number one, when um, I, I don't think it's ever too early to reach out and say, coach, I, I'm going to be a college baseball player and I'm interested in your program. You know, Eric, we have sixth graders that will email and, and, and say, coach, I just want you to know that I'm planning on playing college baseball and Duke's <laughs> my top choice. And, and, and we're not interested in, in recruiting sixth graders. But what I will say is when I read that note, I say, this guy's got guts. Yeah. Uh, this guy's got confidence in himself. If he's, if, if, if he's uh, tough enough and confident enough to email me as a sixth grader, then, then I, you know what, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to listen and I'm going to file that away somewhere in our database. Um, the second part of your question, I think is an important one. How much is too much and, and what's not enough? You know, I've, I've advised my own sons, you know, I think touching base about once a month, mm-hmm. you know, via email. And I think the other thing that guys got to understand, Eric, is, you know, to, to a 14, 15, 16 year old, player email feels like something that your grandparents do yeah, you know I, it feels like kind of a dead language but it's still going to be the best way to make an initial contact with a mm-hmm. coach and open up a, a line of communication and open up a dialogue mm-hmm. and so even though players don't probably use email a whole lot in their normal day-to-day and particularly with their interactions with their peers I think being good at email and checking email is going to need to be part of the recruiting process. That's a good one. Um, so interestingly, uh, just in the last couple of days, a study actually came out that looked at, at injury rates as they relate to showcase appearances. Um, they've actually found that the average date of first showcase, they looked at the top five rounds of pitchers um, between 2011 and 2020, and then basically checked. It was about 27% of them had Tommy John surgery in the years that followed. Um, And what they basically found was that kids who went to showcases younger and who went to showcases more frequently were more likely to to blow out their elbows effectively. So it kind of begs the question, you know, do showcases fit in? Um, Where does a, you know, if you look at the composition of your roster, are they people that have come from relationships with coaches you have on the, you know, the, the youth athlete side of things, previous players, are they, you know, athletes that have come to your camps? You know, what's where, what's the composition if you have to look at, or is it a combination of a number of factors, seeing them over and over again? I think it's a great question. The answer yeah. is it's, it's a little bit of all of it. <laughs> and, and, and I think you, you know this better than anybody that deals in this world. What makes me nervous is when a player says, yeah, coach, I'm I'm going to shut down now that the summer's over with. I'm going to take four weeks off, but then I'm going to ramp back up for two weeks and go yeah. out and pitch in Jupiter. Yeah. Or I'm going I'm, I'm going to I'm going to go to this showcase. Yes. You know, you know, we we take and, and your guys do too. We take about eight weeks of a really steady progressional ramp up yep. to be bullpen ready, and then another few weeks of bullpen readiness before we're li- throwing live to a hitter so that that capacity and volume is built up. I think this yo-yo where guys yes. shut down, ramp up really quickly, shut down, I, I do believe is a big part of the injury risk that happens. Mm-hmm. You know, 
I understand the allure of showcases because you can cast a big net. You've got a lot of coaches in one spot to be able to, to, to you know, to showcase what you can do. Um, but I, I agree with you. I think guys have got to be careful about becoming showcase performers and not true yeah. baseball players. And, and yeah. you know, we've we've done that to ourselves a little bit in our sport where guys are really good at sort of being in a showcase setting, but maybe not as good when it comes yeah. to the to the subtleties of playing the game the right way. And, you know, and we're we're to blame as coaches because we've you know, we've proliferated this kind of recruiting model. Um but I do think there needs to be a balance there. And, and I always tell guys, I think there's, and I don't want to sound self-serving when I say this, but I, I, I do really believe in this value. I, I think being on a college campus and, and attending a, a, a college camp where you can be more targeted in terms of being elbow to elbow with the coaching staff, interacting with them in a, in a more of a uh, of an on the field manner versus I'm sitting up 17 rows in the grandstand yeah. just watching guys run around on the field. I think that camp environment, you get a lot better sense of who a guy really is as a person. Yeah. And you see how they interact with coaching, which I think is a vital part of that, you know, that growth mindset discussion. Yeah, really good point. Uh, I'm I'm a thousand percent in favor of camps. And not only that, you know, the overwhelming majority of college coaches that that I've interacted with kind of meet kids where they're at. Like you'll you'll take a picture out of camp even if he's not ready to throw live in games, even if it's just a 80% bullpen on the side or something like that, there's, there's a little bit more of an ability to meet people where they're at. Um, and, I, and I think that's just a vital, important consideration because everyone you know has kind of a slightly different calendar. So um, I think that's outstanding. Um, you know, is there an age where you're like, absolutely no, you know, even talking about your, you know, your own son, you know, where a showcase would be totally off limits, like, or is it something you would wait till ages, you know, 17, 18, if they're going to do it? Or um, is it something that you wouldn't do at all? Yeah, it's a great point. You know, I've seen a couple of social media posts that have resonated with me with regards to this topic, which is, you know, there's maybe a value in attending one showcase, you know, relatively early in this recruiting progression, Mm -hmm getting a sense of what it's like to go through it, the timing of it, the, the, the adrenaline rush, the, the readiness that you have to have, and then don't go back until you've got something to showcase. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I think good. there's, I've, I've read that a couple of different places. I'm like, yeah, that kind of makes sense. Like get one under your belt. So you kind of know what it's like, but then, then, then you need to go train yeah. and get better so that if you do climb back into that showcase setting, you've got some metrics that, that are going to resonate with coaches. That's, that's incredible. Um, you know, we, we, so we've talked about, you know, the baseball and the, you know, certainly like the the personality and work ethics that, that it takes to compete in the ACC. But, you know, I, I don't think we can overlook the fact that you're also at a very high academic institution. So are, are, what are the complexities that you do with maybe both in the recruiting process and once kids are on campus that maybe, you know, other schools that aren't that prestigious academically don't have to deal with, which, what should the 16 year old kid and parent, you know, who want to play at Duke, you know, know about that? Sure. Well, I think the one thing I would want to communicate is that there just are some standards that we've got to have met before we can really engage in the recruiting process, because otherwise it, it, it becomes sort of a waste of time for that, that player and their family and for us. So, you know, I, I, we always say, like, anytime a player is identified, and you say, man, that guy's got some ACC ability. Well, the mm-hmm. very next thing out of my mouth is, all right, let's get a transcript. 
Yeah. You know, that, that because if the transcript doesn't match up, uh, then it, it's there's no reason to, to to pursue it. I think that players have really got to use the, their guidance office to have a sense of, you know, here's the range of schools I'm interested in. And I think players should have a wide range, especially in today's college baseball post-pandemic mm-hmm. where you've got all the extra years of eligibility. Yeah. Players shouldn't pigeonhole themselves to one program or, or or one level, but really be open, and and then you know do the homework early. Um, is this a school where I'm going to need to take an SAT or an ACT? Is this a school where I'm going to need to have some AP classes on my transcript? If so, maybe I've got to get some prerequisites early in my high school career, and and do the due diligence on the academic side as much as they're doing their training and, and, and their preparation on the physical side so that when they do find a, a place that might be a match from a, from an ability standpoint, they've got what they need in the barn academically, you know, to make it work. Yeah. I, I always get really concerned when I, I see kids that have one or two schools on their list. I, I always want to see a wider list because you're asking it to line up from an ability standpoint, academics, social, geographic, all these different factors. And the chances of you just nailing it with one or two choices just is not great. So I think that's a really, really important consideration. And it's it's a good message for people to, to, to take into account much, much earlier. You know, you don't want to get surprised at age 17 when, you know, you hit 93 and show up, show off a white out breaking ball and all of a sudden a, a big time school comes calling. You want to have those ducks in a row much earlier. Um, maybe touching back on, on some of the complexities in college baseball right now. I know we, we hinted at them earlier, but you know, the transfer portal has, has obviously changed dramatically. Um, the, the name image likeness dynamics, you know, how do you think they're, they're impacting the game and, and do you see it, you know, changing for better or for worse in the years ahead? Yeah, I think it's a great question. And, and to tell you, I know exactly how it's going to change our sport. You know, I don't, I'm not sure anybody knows what yeah. the end game is here and, and where the finish line is. You know, I, I think it really started with the pandemic and 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 the combination of the NCAA creating the extra year of eligibility for anybody that was impacted by the pandemic, combined with Major League Baseball shortening the draft. You know, we had a we had a five round draft in 20 and then uh, post pandemic, it's been a 20 round draft has created, uh, you know, quite a log jam in our sport. Right. And and. Now you've got the, the transfer portal, which in, in some ways is, is meant to release that pressure valve, right, to, to give an outlet for some of this logjam to clear itself out. Um, but it is, you know, it is made for a lot of movement. And, 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 and that can be tricky from, a you know, when you combine the transfer portal, the abbreviated or truncated draft, the extra year of eligibility with the fact that at least at the division one level, we, we have some really specific um, scholarship and roster limitations yeah. that we've, we've got to meet, you know, it, it's really made for a moving target in terms of managing rosters. Right. Yeah. And, uh, and then now you throw in a NIL on top of that. And, and I don't mind saying this, Eric, you know, I, we had a meeting back in February of some uh, some some of the ABCA Division One committee members and 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 the portal and NIL came up and that's you know this is just just a few months ago 
And the sentiment was, hey, you know, the transfer portal is sort of working out exactly the way it should. It's it's providing opportunities for guys that need a fresh start. And we really weren't dealing with NIL at all. And fast forward to the end of May and June, and we went from zero to 100. Yeah. We went from very little NIL activity to it became a major part of the transfer process and and, and recruiting enticement at several places. And, and, and it became what we were seeing in football and basketball. And, you know, I, I tend to be in the camp of, of those who say that the NIL will sort of self-regulate itself. Yeah. You know, it, it will, it will eventually normalize and, and, and hopefully it will move back to the original idea, which is to give these players an opportunity to use their, their their name and their image and their likeness to 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 go out and 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 you know and 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 become their own um businessman and businesswoman and i think it will eventually work itself back that way but right now it is absolutely uh, in football baseball basketball crept into the recruiting side of things yeah and and it's hard to keep it out of that world you know and uh, you know where that dust settles I'm not sure. You know, I heard a really interesting um, take on where NIL might sort of finally land yesterday as I was listening to a podcast while I was driving. And, you know, there's some some speculation that the only way to really get to a, a good landing point with it is to have a collective bargaining agreement between athletes and, and, and NCAA schools. And, you know, and, and maybe four or five years down the road, that's where we end up. Yeah, I, I think the one that that fascinates me, and you, we're not going to know for a couple of years, is you know ultimately this money is coming from corporations, right? That that expect a return on their investment, and you know th- that becomes the question: is what happens when the athlete doesn't deliver the return? You know, there are very specific things that can be tracked, and like it's not easy just to sell stuff by posting pictures on Instagram. There, there sometimes has to be a little bit more to it, and algorithms change and all that stuff. So I'm I'm really intrigued to see if it becomes a like a distraction for players where all of a sudden, like it's one more thing on top of academics and athletics, like, Oh my gosh, I haven't sold a thousand widgets for this company. That's really, you know, relying on me. And it, it is just uh, it's complexity, but you know, that's, that's the evolution we've kind of talked about. So it'd be interesting to see how it all um, plays out. Maybe one thing to, to tie a bow on this, you know, this maybe recruiting discussion is I'd love to hear about like a roadmap and maybe your your son's, you know, process is, is even something that you could reflect on a little bit. But, you know, you've got a 15 year old who's, who's listening to this podcast in the car with, with mom and dad on the ride home from a game. You know, they'd like to be an athlete at Duke and, and potentially beyond the professional baseball. You know, is there a almost like a checklist that, you know, of steps that they should take as teenagers Um to, to make them, you know, a, a Duke player, but also a, a, you know, a championship caliber player while there. I think it's a great question. I think mm-hmm. it starts with, you know, making sure that you've put a roadmap together for the academic side. Mm-hmm. That's going to keep doors open. And so if you, if you, if, if the academic piece is really buttoned up, the, the classes that you're taking, the rigor of the classes that you're taking, the academic performance, the grades you're making in those classes. And then at some schools, you know, being prepared to 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 take the test and 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 maximize your test scores. If that side of it is buttoned up, it really opens doors across all levels and all different types of programs. You know, and 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 then um, there is a marketing piece to this, right? It, it's 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 reaching out directly to those universities that 
um, you're most interested in and 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 selling yourself. Yeah, here's who I am. I'm interested in your program, and and here's why I think I'm a good fit. Mm-hmm. I absolutely think that's a piece, but the self marketing can't um, supersede or get in the way of the actual most important part when it comes to the baseball side, which yeah. is the getting better. Yeah, like at, at some point you have to just put your head down and grind and, and work at your craft, you know, and, and be process oriented uh, and, 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 and allow that development, you know, to put you in a position physically um, where hopefully you're going to be able to land on the radar of those schools you're interested in. The, the, The marketing piece in and of itself, if you're not really, um, strategic about how you're developing your physical tools um, really is going to come up short. Absolutely. Got to have the steak to go with the sizzle. <laughs> yeah. That's yeah. a great way to say it. Yeah. And then once they arrive, you know, what are the, you know, when you go back and you look at a, you know, Bryce Jarvis or, you know, Joey Loprofito or Michael Roth, but one of these guys that, you know, has, has done really, really well. And, and obviously, you know, progressed through school there and gone on to, to professional baseball. Are there certain uh, benchmarks, you know, things that they did that that helped them to get to those points? Well, I think the common thread, you brought up a couple of those guys, a Bryce Jarvis, a, a Mike Rothenberg, a Joey Loprofito, you know, Marcus Johnson, yeah. who was on their training Absolutely. with you. Common thread, all those guys are, are, are elite at process development, and they're really, really good competitors. Mm-hmm. And and I, I think the, the maybe the – the other piece that, in my opinion, gets overlooked, um, they don't mind failure. They don't fear failure. They don't avoid failure. I think one of the things is I, the longer I am in the profession, the, the, the biggest red flag for me is that guy that has a failure avoidance. Yeah. You know, he'll as soon as something starts to get hard or it's something that doesn't come easy to him or he's starting to experience failure, he'll just shy away from it. Those those kind of guys are not long for this sport because our sport is it's is predicated around failure. Yeah. You know, the one as you mentioned, those guys, I I thought of a a quote, actually, we had Sam Fold um, on this and we had trained Sam during his career and. At the time, he had just made the transition that he was a player information coordinator in the Phillies dugout, and he's a general manager. And I asked him, you know, what everyone knew you were always going to make a smooth transition from playing to coaching, managing, front office, whatever it was. What do you think it was that that gave them that clue? And he said, you know, I've always been really curious. Um, and, and I I look at guys like Bryce and you know and Rothenberg and you know Marcus and, and Joey and Will Hoy all these guys and they they are curious you know about cro- across disciplines I saw them interact with big leaguers and you know listen to Jarvis taking in a Scherzer conversation about a changeup they were always seeking out information but I think they were also really good at processing it you know they didn't get overwhelmed with it they understood that it wasn't about taking whatever somebody said and overhauling a good process that was already in place. Maybe it was the something that, that impacted the 1% that could have been, you know, a big game changer for him. So I think it's, you got to be curious, but you also have to have the right filter for, for knowing where you are in your development. Maybe you take in a lot at age 15 and maybe not so much at age 22, but um, I, I think it's a, it's, you know, it's testament what you guys have done from a, a culture standpoint that they're, you know, they're, they're seeking out opportunities to struggle because that's where the success comes from. Yeah. Lifelong learners. Right. That's I mean, that's 
yeah. So uh, I think you, those, some of those guys you just referenced are really good at that. They're 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 guys that that are sponges when it comes to information. And then, like you said, it's the it's the ability to have a good filter. Yeah. Because maybe you don't use all that information, mm-hmm. but you take a lot in, and you're good at knowing which of that information you can put to use. Absolutely. All right. We always we always wrap up with a, a lightning round. So I'm, I'm actually genuinely curious about this because uh, you can speak to maybe a, as a as a parent and a coach. Um, what's one book that you think every player should read? Yeah, this one was an awesome one. I loved I loved it when I got your text. Atomic Habits, good one. Uh, by James yeah. Clear. I, yeah. I think it, it should be like mandatory reading for Division yeah. One baseball players. Yeah, uh, great process a, development. Wasn't he a Davidson guy as well? I feel like that was mentioned. There, he had some connection to college baseball. Yeah, I, he, played, he, he did. He played some college baseball. He sure I'm not did. sure if it was Davidson, but I know there was there was hints of that in the book. I'm going to go back and look up that after we get off the call. Um, what about one book that you think every coach should read? What's what's one that's benefited you? Yeah, I have to be uh, uh, one of our uh, uh, friends in common. Dusty Blake uh, yeah. gave me Intangibles and yeah. I love uh, Intangibles by Joan Ryan, which is really gets into weeds of like chemistry in the locker room. I love it. Um, if you could go back in time and give a, a young Chris Pollard some advice 20 years ago in, your, in, the, in the infancy of your coaching career, what would it be? Yeah, do a better job of being the same guy every day. That's a, I, I need that advice, too. <laughs> That's why I have um, to work on all the time. Yeah, you gotta, you gotta, it's parenting. You know, it's, it's, it's the same thing, too. So uh, how about your favorite coaching memory? Yeah, I, I, absolutely. A couple of those guys you just mentioned were part of it. Being able to hoist an ACC championship trophy in Charlotte in 2021 uh, meant so much to our program. It had been 60 years since Duke had won an ACC championship. So that in of itself was special. But it came on the heels of COVID. And our guys had been through so much to stick yeah. together during COVID. And to come out of the other side of, of that and, and be able to hoist that championship was really meaningful. That's awesome. You know, I, th- I think COVID was was such a challenge, but you also saw a lot of kids that show what they're made of. You know, they a lot of kids de- found a way to develop. They were lifting in garages and all these crazy things. So it was kind of cool in that regard. Um, we saw it in the pro side as well. Um, and then last but not least, we have a lot of kids and parents who listen to this podcast together, as I mentioned. If there was one bit of advice you could give to them, um, both the kids and the parents, how what would it be? Yeah, I would, you know, I think it's really important that, it is as important as this journey is, and and maybe the parent and the player both have the same goal in mind. Uh, that it doesn't in any way uh, detract from the relationship you have together. You know, you, you, while you're working on this common goal, you, you can't miss the boat on this. Is still at the root time spent together, right? Yeah. This is and and. And so keeping that at the forefront of your brain as you go through this process and this journey, I just, you know, my son played a tournament in in Alabama and we decided to stop and look at a college on the way home. Mm -hmm. And it was partly about, hey, yeah, this is this is going to be neat for us to see if this school might be a fit. But it was also just the seven hours in the car together talking and spending time together that we all don't get enough of that I, I thought was really important. That's the cool thing about baseball is you can you can you can have those seven hour days together going to games for a really long time and you always want to leave it better than you found it. So I love the idea of, of fostering a good lifelong relationship with the game because it's, it's something we got to keep in mind in the decades ahead. That's terrific. 
Um, Coach, I can't thank you enough for, for taking the time to do this. There was lots of really good pearls of wisdom in here that I'm sure will will benefit players and coaches and parents alike. So um, really wish you guys well as you get going this fall. And um, again, keep up the good work. Thanks so much for doing this. No, nah, man, I, it was awesome. Humbled to be on with you and, and, and appreciate everything you've done to support our program and all the guys that have been down there with you. It's been a it's been a it's been awesome for them. They come back uh, raving about it and, and better for the experience. Appreciate it.